Hey listeners, welcome to the Alma Bay Spotlight's podcast. I'm your host Kalyan and on this show I will interview a diverse set of alumni relations and fundraising professionals that work at institutions of all types and sizes, not just the large popular ones you'll hear from at conferences. My aim is to bring people whose stories are more relatable so that their ideas are more actionable for you. Today, I'm in conversation with Tyler Reach, Associate Vice President for University Relations at Willamette University, a private university in Salem, Oregon. Tyler has a very interesting journey, having spent several years in politics before becoming an advancement professional at his alma mater. We talk in depth about fundraising ideas that have worked well for them and their top priorities going forward. I hope you enjoy listening to Tyler as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the Alma Bay Spotlights podcast. I'm thrilled to learn more about your journey and some of your ideas today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Let's dial back the years. Let's start from the real beginning, uh, Tyler. Where did you grow up and which high school did you go to? So I, I grew up in Southern Oregon, uh, in the Rogue Valley, Medford, Oregon. And I'm a graduate of South Medford High School. Go Panthers. Yeah. What What are some of the best memories from your high school experience? What are things that you still recall? And how connected are you as an alum of that high school right now? Sure. Uh, well, you know, I, I had a lot of opportunities to serve in leadership roles in high school and had close connections with uh, staff and teachers and, of course, my fellow students. While it was a large high school, for the region, it felt like a small community. And I think that's what really nurtured me in so many ways to uh, think about how to lead as, uh, in, as an individual and how to bring people together as teams. I, I really learned that in, in many ways at the beginning in, in my high school experience and through the mentorship of my teachers. I stay fairly well connected with, with some portion of that community. Uh, there's actually a few teachers that I still consider as good friends and stay connected with who've gotten to know my children over the years and, and who I see when I'm back home and, and certainly a large number of friends that I stay connected to as well. I'm going to put you on the spot for a second, Tyler. Have you made your gift yet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, with, with the high school there, uh, they don't have a foundation. It's a public high school. So I, I don't have to make a gift, but I would if they asked. I love that. That's <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, right after high school, I see that you then decided to pursue a bachelor's degree in politics at Willamette University. How did you decide to go there and how was your experience in college and, and why politics specifically? I'm, I'm really curious. Right. Well, that's a, that's a great question. So when I was in high school, I started working one of those those good teachers that took me under their wings and was a mentor and became a friend over the years uh, was a math teacher who had been good friends with a local physician who had run for the state house and uh, ultimately served in, in the state senate. And she came up to me one day and said, what do you think about working for a medical office here in town. And she knew that I was politically minded and active and interested as a young high school student. And she knew that 
I would probably be well aligned with with him as uh, a state representative, but he'd just been elected. And I didn't I didn't ask any questions. I was looking for a job at that point. And so I said, sure, I'll give it a try. If you think it's a good fit, I'll take a look. And so I ended up walking into the office uh, and, and of the medical practice and I recognized him immediately. And I said, well, you're Al Bates. And he said, I sure am. Uh, didn't you know that before you got here? And I, and I did, but I didn't put two and two together <laughs> at that point, um, that that was the guy who had been running for office and that that was the physician's clinic that I was going to work for. So I'd only heard the, the clinic's name and his name associated with it, but I didn't know I was going to work so closely with him. Well, long story short, uh, he really helped push me into being interested in politics. And when we would go to Salem, which was a four hour drive, the state capital in Oregon, from where we lived and, and where I worked for him in the medical clinic, we he would ask me to go check out Willamette University, which was across the street. He'd tell me to go get lunch over there, give me some money. He'd say not to come back until I made a couple connections with somebody, or if I went and visited with faculty member so-and-so and and got some research for him or got some paperwork signed. Well, little did I know that the senator at that point, uh, by the time I was uh, in college or right before college, um, was actually trying to encourage me to consider Willamette because he knew it'd be such a great fit for me. And it literally is across the street from the state capitol building, which would feed my interest in getting involved in politics, learning about politics as that laboratory across the street from the place you're going to school. Um, and of course, selfishly on his part, he wanted to keep me close so that I could continue to work with him. And, and of course, he served as a, as a really strong mentor in my life. So politics kind of came together and was interweaved in that journey all along. I was always interested, but uh, Senator Bates and uh, Willamette really served as the place where uh, those things all came together. And he really, he pushed me towards Willamette. And ultimately, that was absolutely the right decision. He knew me better than I did. I love how all of that uh, came together for you. I want to talk a little bit about what happened after college, but I'm really interested in um, how do you value that sort of mentorship that you got from the senator you know, at a very formative stage of your, of your life, right? How do you look back at that? What are some of the key learnings for you from that mentorship? Sure. I'm forever grateful for him taking time uh, to really get to know me. You know, when I first started working for him, I was just 16. I actually started working for him. My very first day was my 16th birthday. And I was just a kid looking for a part-time job to help out in the office. We have a part-time legislature in Oregon. And so um, our our legislators are not paid uh, extremely well to serve in in their legislative roles. So unless they're independently wealthy or their um, employer allows them to go and take six months off every other year to serve in the legislature, they have to work while they're serving. And so that meant that he would serve in the legislature Monday through Friday, and then I would work for him while he saw patients in his family medical practice uh, Saturdays and Sundays. And there were very few 
adults out there who have family lives or families who were willing to work the number of hours that he needed to work on Saturday and Sunday to see his patients in an effective way and then be able to go and serve in the legislature for that six months of, of our legislative sessions that happen every other year here in Oregon. So the fact that he was so busy and yet he would sit down and get to know me and my interests and my passions that as aligned with that, his own as, as they may have been. I can remember him sitting down and, and showing me bills from the legislature that he was reading in preparation for the week ahead. And he'd ask me, what do you think about this? Read this bill. Uh, give me your opinion. And we'd have these really deep conversations about policy and leadership and public good and being good citizens. And that really sparked my interest and my, my intellectual growth from an early stage in, in politics and policy and, and what we can do to make our society better. And the fact that he would take that time when he had a large and very busy practice, he was a state senator, a legislator, one of one of the leaders in his uh, party and in his uh, legislative body, uh, really meant the world to me. And that relationship lasted uh, for for many years. And and up until he passed away a few years ago, we would have regular conversations uh, well into uh, my professional career outside of politics where I'm at today. And so uh, I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about a lesson that he taught me uh, and how it affects the way I operate in the work I do today. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, mentorship, like I said, is such a, tr I mean, has the ability to be so, so transformational for anyone, especially earlier, early on in your life. And I think you've, you've certainly been fortunate to find the right kind of mentor, but obviously you've made the best of that experience as well. So you know, now, now I know why right out of college, you became chief of staff for Senator Alan Bates and then served that role for about seven years. What are, what were some of the key takeaways from that journey of, of those seven years? Well, you know, I, I learned everything from, from how to be a professional in a, in a professional setting, right. Uh, to how to really think about the impact of the work that you do on others, on your colleagues, how to build a team and encourage them to achieve your goals that you set forth at the beginning, how to identify those goals from the onset of a project and, and really to deliver on those. And more importantly, I learned the value in helping lift others up in your community to do better and that your own success isn't necessarily at the expense of others. It's when you all rise together. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned from working in, in medicine with the senator, working in his legislative office, serving as his chief of staff, um, and then ultimately working in higher education and why, I, why it led me to higher education um, as a profession. It, it was really a transformational experience working for him. And the lessons, you know, everything from when to wear a suit jacket uh, to an event or the or a meeting to uh, how to think and, and prepare for 
major transformational changes within a team or an organization that will make a difference for others. He is a voice in the back of my head every step of the way. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, after seven years of doing that, you then jumped from politics to fundraising and alumni relations in higher education. How, how did that happen? How did you end up going back to Willamette? Yeah, well, if you would have asked me uh, in, in 2007 when that happened, uh, if that was going to be a path for me, I would have said there's no way. I was having a ton of fun working on policy. We were working on healthcare reform in the state of Oregon at that time. Uh, this was well before Obamacare and, and national changes around access to healthcare uh, ha- occurred uh, on, on the federal level. And I was having a great time. We were working hard. It was long hours. And uh, I didn't think I was going to be moving on. I, I saw a real uh, forward path for me in policy and legislation and, and politics generally. And one day, I, it, as you do in any profession, I had a rough day. We lost a legislative battle on a bill. I don't, I can't even remember what the bill was at this point. That's how funny, you know, looking back at it, it wasn't that big of a deal, but that day it was, um, as we all have those, those moments. And a colleague of mine, uh, said, you know, there's, there's an opening over at Willamette, uh, that I think you'd be great for. And, I tried not to be offended by that because it's someone I worked with and they're like, no, 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 no. I was talking to a friend and this was someone that, that also went to Willamette and I was talking to a mutual friend of ours and they're leaving their position at Willamette. And so I said, Oh, well, tell me more. I didn't know that, that, that friend was leaving. And so, uh, one thing led to another and that friend actually texted me after my colleague had let them know that I had asked about them leaving. And she said, I think you'd be great for my job. You should consider it. And I basically said, no, thanks. I was just more curious about where you were headed. And she was going off to a graduate program and, uh, and was really, I'm, I'm excited for you is what I told her. And, and she said, great. I'm going to reach out to you tomorrow and send you all the materials for you to apply. And I kind of laughed it <laughs> off and, and, um, she sent me the materials. And uh, the next thing I know, uh, she's calling me again and asking me why I hadn't applied yet and that I really needed to be in the pool. And I just kept kind of pushing her off. And, and finally, one thing led to another. And, and I'd had enough bad days in a row around just legislative work that I applied just on, on kind of that whim, that moment, and thought nothing more of it and kind of let it be. And uh, I ended up getting an interview. And, uh, got an opportunity to really learn about the program. And the more I learned, uh, the more I thought I was the right fit for the work. And the more excited I became about giving back to an institution that had given me so much. Uh, and, and within a month or two, I was working at Willamette as a professional in, in advancement. Enough bad days in a row. I'm going to yes. take that as a quote. <laughs> it happens, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's what led you to go back to Willamette. I'm also curious uh, in terms of your decision from, you know, working at Willamette for about six years and then moving on to Occidental College, again, in the advancement space, and then coming back to Willamette. So what was the thought process behind those decisions? 
Sure. Well, I had spent um, a, a good number of years uh, at Willamette in the annual fund, doing some really great and exciting work there and growing the fund. But I really did believe we were getting to a place. I was director of the, the annual fund at that point. I, I really believed that we were organized in silos. So the annual fund, alumni and parent engagement, the major gifts team, we were all working kind of in our individual departments and doing the work that we were doing. And we were doing good work. But I felt philosophically like there was a disconnect because we were all working with the same audience. And we weren't necessarily always putting that audience at the center of all of our strategies. They were certainly at the center of our strategy individually as programs uh, from a programmatic standpoint, but they weren't at the center of the strategy overall. And so I started doing quite a bit of research to figure out if there was a better structure for this kind of work. And we were going through uh, transitions at the institution and on leadership levels. We had a new vice president that was coming on board at Willamette for the advancement division. And so as I, as I did this research, I came across a great master's uh, uh, thesis. I started looking at these different structures. And I really believe that the annual fund and alumni and parent engagement and donor relations and some of the communications functions really belong together under the same leader. They could still work in their individual silos uh, in, in that you didn't have an annual fund officer who was also an alumni engagement officer or the other way around. You had someone who was running an alumni engagement program, but also asking for money. I didn't believe that that was the right structure, but I did believe that they needed to know what the left and right hands were doing and that we were putting the alum or parent or the, the, the individual at the center of our strategy across the board so that we could engage them in the most thoughtful way possible with the institution. And at that very moment, that I, I got a call from a recruiter who said, we're looking for uh, the right assistant vice president for alumni and parent engagement at Occidental College. And this person would oversee the departments I just laid out. And I thought, how is this even possible that someone is thinking <laughs> about this the way I am? And I got a recruitment call um, about about this position. And so I started to dig in and after a lengthy process, uh, was invited to, to become that person for Occidental College. And it just seemed like the right next step in, uh, my professional journey. It was the place that was going to challenge me to put that thinking to work and, and kind of make the experiment, uh, work out if I could. And they were willing to, to jump in. There was an uh, inspiring vice president who really believed in that structure. Turns out it was that vice president's master's thesis that I had found. So it was actually their theory at work. And I was a, a disciple of that theory at that point. And uh, we had a really great uh, three and a half, four years together building that program and saw some really good success. Well, that vice president, Shelby Radcliffe uh, at Occidental, came into my office one day and said, uh, you know, L.A. hasn't been the perfect fit for me. Uh, she's much more 
outdoorsy and and uh, needed more green than LA could offer uh, in the atmosphere out there. And it's it's a little bit dry and brown as it is in Southern California during the summer uh, months, which seem to be getting longer and longer. And uh, she wanted more more uh, nature to go and hike in and and just a different fit for herself. And and so she said, I think. I think you might know the institution that I just got a job in. I said, really? And she said, it's Willamette University. And I almost fell <laughs> over because she, of course, is part of the team that recruited me to Occidental from Willamette. And uh, one thing led to another, and she invited me to apply for the position at Willamette. And by 2016, I was back home at my own alma mater. Uh, building the program uh, with the same theory with these offices reporting into me uh, and, and hopefully, and I think, I believe, making a, a big difference for Willamette now. Yeah, I absolutely love that story. And I think one of the things that I um, really admire about what you said was talking about how you have to sort of put the constituent or the individual that you're trying to engage or that, that you're trying to raise money from at the center of all of the different programming and activity that, you know, okay. as an institution you're doing, right? We call yes. that approach alumni-centric. Um, which makes a ton of sense, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of institutions don't do a really good job of putting the, the alum at the center and understandably so in some cases, because if you have tens of thousands of alumni with, you know, let's say one alumni relations person and one annual fund person, there's only yes. so much you can do. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's often the case that every office has the best intentions for that individual. And, but they have their program to deliver on and their goals that they need to deliver for the institution. And those are all really important goals. But sometimes we lose sight of the alum at the center of that strategy. And they don't think of us as office of whatever, right? They think of us as the institution writ large, their alma mater, the place that they hopefully love and and want to stay connected and grow in their connection with. And if we don't put them at the center of that strategy, we miss out on building the relationship. If we think about this as a family relationship, I always think of the work as we're, we're all sitting around a dinner table together as a family. That alum, our individual uh, staff members who work with that alum in their relationship with the institution, and how would we treat that conversation over dinner? It's not that one person's going to talk about one thing and then we're going to stop the conversation and completely wipe the dinner table clean and start the next conversation with a new meal. We're going to have a continual conversation. It's going to get a little messy over that dinner table, but that's part of building those relationships. And if we have a strategy going in that understands that it can be messy, but that we're trying to really keep that person at the center of the work we're doing, it allows us to decide which course comes first and what the cadence of the meal or the conversation is going to be. And at the end of the day, hopefully the outcome is much stronger and more enjoyable for the alum who's at the center of it. I, I love that analogy. I mean, Unfortunately, we don't have videos on here, but if you, if we had videos on, you'd see me nodding my head and taking notes. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, let, let's switch gears a little bit here. Let's talk about your current role. So currently as associate vice president for university relations at 
Willamette University. What are your top priorities at the moment? Sure. Well, you know, the the pandemic that we're all experiencing has really strengthened those priorities in many ways and shifted some of the tactics that we use. And so our overall priorities are always to grow the love for and pride in the institution among our constituents, our alumni and parents in this case. And we're always, of course, asking for them to consider providing time, talent, and treasure in that engagement with the institution. So achieving our fundraising goals, uh, our, our engagement goals, and supporting our students and helping them launch into the world, whether that's going on to a graduate program at their undergrad or, um, or landing in that next job, regardless of where they're graduating, what college they're graduating from at Willamette. Uh, we're always striving to, to meet those needs and those interests. But what we found is that we're doing a lot of that virtually now where we didn't in the past. And so we've always had these three, from an alumni engagement standpoint, these three areas that we're focused on, connecting our alums with each other, connecting them with the university, meaning our students and faculty and staff and the programs that we're running at the institution, and then ultimately becoming the intellectual hub for our alumni through life cycle programming. And so we're able to accomplish many of those things now that we have learned in the last more than a year um, since, since March of 2020, that we can do a lot of this virtually through online programming that really meets people where they're at uh, through networking events online. Now that has ebbed and flowed depending on what's happening or, or the general fatigue of, of, uh, our alumni and parent populations at any given moment or the crisis of the moment. This has been a very big year for crises on a national and regional level. We've had anything from, um, you know, forest fires in our region to, uh, uh of course the pandemic overall to a national election to, social unrest and and fights for for justice uh a, across uh, the country and really around the world that have pivoted our conversations and our strategies along the way so we've learned a lot but ultimately what we're seeing is that we have great engagement at a different level um and through different vehicles than we've ever had before and we're exceeding on many levels our fundraising goals as well. So this has turned out to be a very successful year for us and a year where we went in worried that it might be quite the opposite. Yeah, and it's amazing uh, how many institutions mentioned that this year and, and the last 12 months or so have been phenomenally successful from a fundraising perspective. But, you know, back in March 2020, if you had asked if you're taking a poll of all the annual fund directors, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure so many people would have sounded very positive. That's right. I mean, we, we were definitely, I, we took a month off of, of asking for funds um, through the annual funds when, when March kind of hit last year. And then we very slowly leaned back into the conversation and did it very softly. Uh, if you are able, we hope you will. Uh, we understand many aren't that type of approach. And what we saw were people were really standing up and 
increasing their support and and able to do what they could and were willing to do what they could. And so that led us to really lean into the strategy we've had for quite some time at, at Willamette in growing the annual fund. And we're seeing record growth as a result. But you better bet when we did feasibility, we discounted the potential of that growth going in because we just didn't know what uh, next week was going to hold. Uh, it seemed like mm-hmm. every day there was something new that we were learning or things were closing or or reopening. It was kind of a roller coaster. Um, but what we did know at the end of the day was that the need among our students was higher than it had ever been and their families. And that they wanted to be back in the classroom and they didn't want to slow down their opportunity to learn and to grow. And that required more resources. And so we were there uh, to make that case. And we were very fortunate that our community stepped up to support us. Can you share some metrics uh, around that? I don't know if if any of these is feasible, but in terms of alumni participation, um, in terms of fundraising last year versus this year and what kind of growth you've seen? Sure. So we have... So let's start with the fundraising numbers. Uh, last year for the annual fund, we raised just over $2 million unrestricted among our uh, alumni and parent populations across our, our university. And that was a record year for us, even as a, uh, in the middle of the, or at least the beginning of a pandemic, right? Uh, we were thrilled about that. And so we set a goal of just slightly higher than that $2 million that we raised in fiscal year 20 for fiscal year 21. And we did see a dip in in the number of donors that year, which was not surprising uh, given the the situation that we were all facing uh, really around the globe. And what we found was we exceeded that $2 million fundraising goal, unrestricted dollars for the annual fund, by December 31st. And our our fiscal year runs until June 30. And so we started to look at that that result and we were um, thrilled and uh, excited and humbled by uh, the way the community stepped up. And there was no one factor there. There wasn't one big benefactor. There wasn't uh, one kind of vehicle. There, the, what we were finding was that our strategies across the program for the annual fund were really delivering and we were meeting a moment and the need was never higher and the case was never stronger for people to step up and give. And what we're also seeing is that we are up across all categories in the number of donors year over year as well. And I think that speaks highly with one exception that is right now young alumni. Uh, within that first 10 years out. This isn't surprising to us, by the way. We know that that is a group that's been hit hardest economically by the pandemic uh, in early career. Uh, and we also know that um, that's, a, that's a group that we tend to, to um, count giving around senior class gift as well uh, for those participation numbers. And we have not done a senior class gift over the last two years now with the pandemic. And so that has been a hit in our participation numbers. So that's one easy way to explain what's going on there. But really, we're we're seeing that overcome by the number of donors who are stepping up in all other age groups and categories 
for uh, an increase in donors overall. So we're up in donors, we're up in dollars, and then of course we're we're also close to meeting our overall goal of um, around eighteen million dollars uh, for uh, fundraising total, uh, including our major gift strategy. So we're having a very successful year so far. That's amazing. That is, those are some amazing numbers. Um, and you, you know, you all are doing some amazing things um, there at Willamette University. But you know, one particular idea that I absolutely enjoyed learning about was WStream. Can you yes. explain WStream to our listeners and how you came up with that idea? Absolutely. So in 2018, we did our first comprehensive alumni survey to just learn what our alums thought of the institution, how they were receiving information about the institution, what they were interested in being involved in, and, uh, and, and how we might pivot our programs or grow our programs to meet those needs, to, to meet our alums where they're at. And what we learned through that survey, among many things, um, there's 370 pages of data there, right? Um, but, but the stuff that really rose to the top was that our alums said, meet us where we're at. Come to us, don't expect us always to come to you. And a big driver in that for us was to figure out how to do virtual programming. And because we knew that we, we were already doing regional programs in our top tier regions where we had uh, concentrations of alumni and parents. We were already doing great signature programs on campus, such as reunions and homecomings and, and other opportunities for the arts uh, and, and athletics and so forth for people to come back. But we hadn't really leaned into the opportunity of doing podcasts or uh, webinar type uh, uh, engagements. And so we had already at the end of 2019 and early 2020, so in fiscal year 20, started to build a very small framework program that we would do six online webinars for the coming year. And we had some faculty members and some alums who were interested in in doing some, some of these with us and to kind of serve as our guinea pigs. And so we had recorded a couple in December of 2019 and uh, had a couple live webinars then. And we were really just getting ready to launch Bluestream. And that's when the pandemic hit in March. And our whole program was put on hold, essentially. But we had a strong framework for this, this virtual idea. And so our entire professional team in alumni and parent engagement sat down via Zoom and said, what can we accomplish? And so everyone uh, took three, three to five ideas and they went and they booked it and we got it on the schedule and we recorded some and in some cases pre-recorded and some we, we did it live and recorded and broadcast them later as well. Um, and, and that was the launch of Bluestream. And we ended up going from six planned programs to over 40 programs by uh, June of 2020. And what we found was that our alums loved it. They were showing up. Uh, we were having an average of uh, 70 participants per event, uh, which was terrific, better than a lot of our in-person events in the regions. And they wanted more. And so that really launched us and gave us confidence in the program 
moving forward this year. And at this point, we've averaged that 70 participants all year long. You know, it ebbs and flows depending on the event or the time of the year. But really what we've seen is, is high levels of participation from a group of people who would not normally participate. So we had one event where we had people all the way from Japan and Hawaii and New York and Canada. We had a participant from Mexico. And then, of course, all over the Pacific Northwest and, and, um, and, and along the West Coast, participating in something that would have never had those folks participate in if we had done the event in person. And so it opened our eyes to say there's a whole community out there of people who want to be engaged with the institution who've not been given that opportunity because of distance, because of expense, because of a lack of ability to connect in person in that way. This has been a transformational uh, driver for how we're going to do alumni engagement moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's so many things that I'm sure the listeners will learn from that idea, but I think most important for me was how you said, you know, meet alums where they are and also how you started with sort of asking alumni what they cared about and how they'd like to stay engaged with, yeah. with the university. Um, and we're sort of inching towards the close here. I could keep going, but you know, uh, before we wrap up, Tyler, I have three sure. rapid questions for you. Number one, what's one book that you would recommend to your peers in advancement? Sure. This is uh, at the at the risk of being cheesy, but also um, really something that I think fi- I find as being a driver and how I organize myself and how my most effective employees and team members uh, get their work done is that that age old book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, by Stephen Covey. And, and that really helps drive from uh, habit one through habit seven, how to get things done quickly and um, effectively, and to really help drive those programs that, that build change. So any young new employee that joins the team, uh, I always ask them to pick up that, that book and, and we dig into it. That's amazing. What's an advice you would give your own 20-year-old self? <laughs> well, you know, the thing that I've learned is that our paths professionally are never going to play out the way that we envision them. And so to to let go of the plan, so to speak, even though you should always work a plan and have a plan framed uh, for your, your future, uh, to trust that things will work out as long as you dedicate yourself to doing the best you can in the job you have right now. And I think sometimes that gets lost, especially if I was 20 today as a, if I, if I was a millennial, um, in, in this moment to not stress what that next step is and to really lean into the opportunity I have in front of me. Um, because it all works out for the best. And, and you look back and you say, gosh, this all makes so much sense that this was the path I was on and this is where it turned out. But along the way, if you would have asked me, I would have said, there's no chance it's going to play out the way that it has. Yeah. I think we all have to uh, remember to enjoy the journey and not worry too much about the destination. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, What has been a a good resource or software tool that has particularly helped you in the job over the last, say, 12 to 18 months? 
Yeah, I, I've really leaned on uh, Smartsheets from a project management standpoint. Um, has that has been key for me and my team? Uh, this has been one of those years where uh, best laid plans don't always work out the way you think they should, and so having that plan at least laid out and and going step by step and being able to look at the horizon and say, okay, this isn't going to go down the path we thought it was going to. We're we're taking a left turn here. What do we need to adjust? And and Smartsheet's been great for us in that way. I would also say uh, Zoom and and really any of these virtual platforms that we've had uh, access to and been able to really lean into have been transformational in our ability to do this work uh, in the way that we've done it. If you would have thought about us going into a pandemic even 10 years ago, uh, we would have never had the opportunity to engage our alums this way. Maybe some some print materials, um, but but really not this face-to-face -face interaction that we've been able to have. Uh, you know, we didn't even have smartphones uh, in the way that we do now uh, then. So really, in, in some ways, technology has met the moment and has given us the ability to connect with people in a way that we never would have before. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is Again, this has been an amazing conversation, Tyler. I've, I've learned a ton from this and I'm sure the listeners will as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care.